For those that may be listening for the first time, our podcast is an offshoot from our main platform, YouTube. Our channel is called Coffee and Bible Time, where our goal is to help people delight in God's word and thrive in Christian living. We also have a website and storefront with Bible studies, prayer journals, courses, and more. Hey, Jordan, what a joy it is to reconnect with you today. I always love hanging out with you and your daughters, Ellen. Uh, how have you been? Oh, my goodness. There's so much been going on since we last met, but I'd like for you to catch me up on what's going on in your life. Like, what would you say? Oh, man. So Jordan and I were in a mastermind group together. That's how we met. Um, he's an incredible uh, author, and I'm just excited to Tell our audience, like, what's been maybe the most challenging thing and the most exciting thing that's happened since we talked last? Oh, man, it's probably been a year since we connected. The most challenging thing, oh, has got to be um, finding the courage to say, yeah, I'm going to publish this book that we're publishing right now. Mm. Because as you know, you've seen an advanced copy of it. Uh, I'm saying some things that aren't said a lot of times in evangelical circles around the, the, the topic of, of, of faith and work and saying some hard things. And I was just really blessed. Uh, actually, right before Dr. Keller died, Tim Keller, we had a great conversation and talking about the contents of the, this book and just my work in general and him just like blessing that, mm -hmm. encouraging me to just, you know, lean into the message of this book. And so when I think about the biggest challenge and the biggest blessing, I think kind of that goes hand in hand. The biggest challenge is like finding the courage to be like, yeah, no, we're going to say these things. Uh, and the blessing is having people like Tim and, and elders come around the book and be like, yes, like this is what the church needs to hear right now. Uh, and then just more on a personal level, uh, I got three young kids, right? So a very full life. I have three daughters who are nine, seven, and four. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so like there's just like constant challenges and blessings uh, wrapped up in being a father to three girls. I mean, you get it. Oh, you're, yeah. You're mama bear. Oh, mama. yeah. Yeah. It. I've have three as well. And boy, I just yeah. know those are busy, busy years. <laughs> a lot going on as they get yeah. involved in all their different things. And yeah. And man, maybe, maybe you can counsel me. We have a therapy session here. <laughs> It's what's challenging is to push back on the cultural mm. assumption of busyness and hurry. Yes. Right. Um, and, and just refusing to be in sports six days a week. Right. Yeah. Like I just like mm -hmm. not in the courts and listen, yep. that's fine for, for, for some people. I'm not, I'm not judging other people who are doing that, but like for me and my family, I think I would go crazy uh, living that kind of lifestyle. So I feel like by God's grace, we're living at a really sane pace Good. and by his grace, this is just like a really fun, sweet season. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when they're super young, it's not fun. I don't care what anybody says. Everyone's like, ah, oh, you're going to miss the baby years. Ah, I don't know. I don't think you are. I don't think you are. Uh, <laughs> when they get older, it gets more fun. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I think, you know, um, just, putting boundaries on your time is so valuable, especially like now that I've come to the point in my life where my kids are half moved out that, you know, you can't get those years back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that you said that you're, you're keeping taps on that. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jordan, 
I'm so excited actually to talk to you about this topic t- today. And I think back now about, I wish I would have read your book like while I was a stay-at-home mom or while I was working in corporate America, because as I was going through it, I just found it so tremendously encouraging, so insightful. You really uh, turned my head a few times as I thought about things. So let's let's jump right in. So our, our goal here today, right, is to help our listeners see how their secular work matters for eternity. Yep. And I found it so interesting that right from the get-go, you first turned around my understanding of the word work. So I think it's important for our audience because, you know, we have such a diverse, you know, age group here, students and moms and all kinds of people. So help us understand, like, what is this definition of work, the biblical way? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It, listen, the Bible doesn't come with a glossary, uh, unfortunately, right? So I, I, I think we got to look to Scripture for clues as to how God might define these terms. And I, I think if God were were if, if Jesus were sitting here on this podcast and forced to define work, I think He would define it a lot more broadly than the way that we typically do. We we typically define work as the thing somebody does for income. But God's definition of work is so broad that in Exodus 20, as he's handing down the Ten Commandments, he says that even animals work, right? The fourth commandment to Sabbath is a command for humans to rest and animals to rest from their labor. So I think the most biblical way to define work is simply to expend energy in an effort to achieve a desired result or stated negatively, right? It's it's the opposite of leisure and rest. And that definition obviously includes what you do for pay as a marketer or a librarian or a teacher or an entrepreneur, whatever. But it also includes the work we do at home doing laundry and mowing the grass or studying for an exam. Yeah. All of that is work. And I think the story we see in scripture is that all of it matters for eternity and that's really the crux of this new book uh, that we're launching out. The mm-hmm. And it's just, it adds so much value to your life when you think of it this way. So the second clarification then yep. that also really broadened my understanding was how all Christians can instantly view their secular workplace as sacred. Tell us what yep. you mean by that. Yeah, these terms matter, right? I'm glad we're defining terms. Mm-hmm. This is how every one of these interviews should start, Ellen. You're mm-hmm. doing it right. That word secular literally means without God, with no regard to religion, without God. But we Christians believe, we just prayed this before we started recording, that God is with us, literally, wherever we go through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so the only thing you listener need to do to instantly make your quote unquote secular workplace sacred is walk through the front door or log on to zoom. That's it. Now I'll say that with a big caveat, clearly there's some work that's off limits for Christ followers, right? But I'm going to go ahead and assume that our listeners are not making a living, uh, explicitly exploiting the poor or peddling pornography or something else that overtly contradicts God's word. And if that's true, and you are seeking first the kingdom of God, then in the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, nothing is secular. Everything 
is sacred because mm-hmm. everywhere you walk is sacred ground. So for me, there's no question of the sacredness of the seemingly quote unquote secular work our listeners do. I think the more interesting question, I think the more life changing question is, okay, how does that sacred work matter beyond the present? Because we understand that in the present, it's a means of loving my neighbor as myself. It's a means of glorifying God. But how does it matter for eternity? And that's the question I'm helping readers unpack in the sacredness of sexual mm-hmm. work. Absolutely. Well, in the book that you say that the Great Commission, as we know, is great, um, and you're not denying that, yes. but you're saying it's not the only commission. So tell us about the Great Commission and the danger in treating it as the only commission that Jesus gave us. Yeah. Uh, And I'm glad you pointed out that I'm not saying the Great Commission isn't great. I think the Great Commission is very great, Uh, but it is a very new idea in church history, roughly 200 years old, that the Great Commission is the only commission that Jesus's followers are called to, this call to make disciples. And it's Really problematic for a lot of reasons. I'll just give you three reasons why it's so problematic to treat it as the only commission. Number one, Jesus never did. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you to do, right? And the Gospels record Jesus giving us about 50 unique commands. If Christ meant for us to interpret the call to, quote, unquote, save souls and make disciples as the totality of Christian mission— He could have said so, but he didn't. Instead, he used his final words to reiterate the importance of following the totality of his teachings. Mm. That's the first problem with treating the Great Commission as the only commission. Jesus never did. Here's the second. Um, Ironically, it makes us less effective at the Great Commission. Um, I would argue that for the foreseeable future, just as it was in the first few centuries of Christianity, Full-time missionaries and pastors are not going to be the most effective people at making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's going to be near Christians going to work Monday through Friday with people who will never darken the door of a church to hear about Jesus for the first time. But when the Great Commission is the only one we hear preached in our churches, Hmm. and when the only people we see on stages in our churches are pastors and full-time missionaries, we mere Christians in the pews inevitably feel guilty yes. about working in the very places most likely to make disciples. And I think most dramatically, that guilt will drive people to leave those workplaces, but at a minimum, it will make us half-hearted creatures while we stay there. You know, I, I've, been, I've, I've spent the last two years writing this book about how our work matters beyond the Great Commission, and the irony is – In those two years, I've shared the gospel more than in the 10 years prior. Why? Because when you understand how 100% of your time matters for eternity Mm. and not just the 0.1% of the time that you're walking somebody through the Romans road, it makes you come fully alive and fully alive people attract the lost like honey attracts bees. So I promise – Three reasons why it's so dangerous to treat the Great Commission as the only commission. Number one, Jesus never did. Number two, we're ironically making the church less effective at the Great Commission when we do this. And then finally, and most relevant to the topic of this book, when the Great Commission – when we treat the Great Commission as the only commission, it is impossible to see the full extent of how our work matters for eternity. Because if the Great Commission is the only commission, 
then our work only has eternal value when leveraged to the instrumental end of saving souls. And if our work only has instrumental value, then most of us are wasting the vast majority of our time. That's deeply depressing. More importantly, it's deeply unbiblical. And so the purpose of this book, readers, our, our listeners right now, they understand that their work matters because they could share the gospel. What about the other 99% of your time at work? How does that matter for eternity? And that's what we're really sinking our teeth into with this book. Mm, Absolutely. You know, you, you know, more definitions here, but it also really helped me when you talked about instrumental value versus intrinsic value and both of those, um, you know, lend additional insight into this whole topic. Yeah, for sure. And and this is kind of what we were just talking about. So I define instrumental value, and I think this is what most Christians understand already. Mm -hmm. My work has value because, uh, let's say as a barista, right? My work has eternal value because I can leverage that job as a barista to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with my coworkers or writing a check to my church. Instrumental value, right? Yeah. What I'm arguing in this book is, hey, yes, your work has instrumental value. Absolutely, 100%. But it also has intrinsic value to God. On the days in which you're making a latte and don't have a chance to share the gospel with somebody, that act of making a latte has the potential to matter for eternity, right? That's the that's the crux of this book. Mm, okay, so that's a perfect lead into this idea yep. of the abridged version of the gospel versus the unabridged. So tell our listeners like what you mean by that because wow, this was like a pop the cork out of the bottle yep. moment for me when I read this section. Yeah, so the the introduction of the book is really setting up the problem. It's like, okay, we're treating the Great Commission as the only commission. How do we move away from this lie? And I would argue there are two thick roots feeding that lie. Number one are these half-truths about heaven that we've begun believing in our current day and age. And number two are these half-truths that we've bought about the gospel or what I call the abridged gospel, which I would argue is the dominant version of Jesus' good news preached today. Here's what it sounds like. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to save you and me from our sins. Listen, every word of that statement is, praise God, gloriously true. Mm -hmm. But it is a tragically incomplete and truncated version of the gospel, hence the name, the abridged gospel. And there's tons of practical implications for this, right? Because if the gospel is only good news for our souls, as the abridged gospel suggests, then the great commission to save souls and make disciples is the singular mission of your life, and most of you are wasting most of your time, including myself. Right, But this isn't the good news. This isn't the totality of the good news we see in Scripture. Right, The unabridged gospel says that in the beginning, God created a perfect world and invited his children to be with him first and foremost and to rule over this world with him, filling, subduing, and ruling the earth via the first commission that we see in Genesis 1. Right there in Genesis 1, God doesn't just call our souls good. He calls all of creation, including this material world, and our work with that material world, very good. Turn your Bible over to Genesis 3. We sin. We usher in the curse that broke every part of creation, ensuring our need for a Savior. And Jesus' resurrection 
fast forward thousands of years, proved emphatically that he was the savior that God promised in Genesis 3 who saves us by grace through faith. And while we are not saved by our works, we have been saved for the good works God prepared in advance for us to do all along. And what are those good works? Go back to Genesis 1, working (laughs) with this material world to cultivate heaven on earth. And if that's the gospel, this indescribably great news, not just for my soul, but for the cosmos, Mm -hmm. right? For this material world, then we can be confident. This is kind of where I land uh, in the book in this dual vocation we have in the present. Yes, the Great Commission to make disciples, but also the first commission to make culture and make a world that oozes God's goodness over the face of the earth, right? There's this lie that has crept into Christianity that says that somehow post-Genesis 3, the Great Commission has replaced the first commission. That's a lie. You know why? Because Jesus's blood paid the price to redeem the spiritual and the material world, to put us back to the work we were meant to do from the beginning in the garden to cultivate this world and make it more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. And because of that, you could start to see how 100% of your life matters for eternity, not just the explicitly spiritual tasks of evangelism and prayer. Mm. Absolutely. One of the things that you talked about that really sort of uh, solidified this for me was when you talked about how they used the, the, the parts of the earth to create things with, right? Like um, the stones and gold. So, yeah. and then you refer to it then look at the end story, right? The new creation. And that's what we see as well. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that part? I would love to. Nobody ever asked about this. It's one of my favorite Ah. details in all of scripture. I'm so glad you appreciated it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's this little detail in Genesis 2 that I skipped over for years. I'm like, I don't know what this means. I don't know the relevance. And it's a perfect symbol for Christian mission. Okay. Genesis 2, to a human mission, really. Genesis 2, 10 through 12 says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Okay. So in the second chapter of scripture, we find these three elements underneath Adam and Eve's worksite gold aromatic resin which is also translated pearls sometimes Mm -hmm. and onyx which for those of us who are not geologists is this beautiful precious stone right where else do we see these three things in god's word in the second to last chapter of scripture this could not be more poetic which describes the new jerusalem god's eternal city as having streets of gold gates made of pearls and walls decorated with every kind of precious stone, including onyx. I've read a lot of theologians who argue that these materials were placed beneath the ground to be discovered by Adam and Eve or their descendants for the literal construction of what would become the city of God. I think that's right. I think this is God's poetic way of of illustrating the first commission of saying, hey, kids, 
I created this world good. I created for you to fill it and subdue it and rule it with me for my glory and your joy. And somehow, miraculous as the resurrection that will come thousand years later, somehow all of your labor is not going to be in vain. Somehow I'm going to take all of that labor and use it to build our eternal home, right? Uh, it's just this beautiful symbol of what we were meant to do in the beginning, what Christ has redeemed us to do today. I don't think we're literally constructing the New Jerusalem now post-Genesis 3, but this is what we were made for in the beginning. And fast forward to our eternal vocation. This is what we're going to be doing forever and ever, right? And I talk a lot about this in the book. Eternity is not a vacation, but a perfect vocation. Yes, I laughed working, when I read that. Yeah, yeah I Working this earth with King Jesus without the curse. Yeah. Learn what theology is and how to study God within the Bible in course number seven of our In-Depth Bible Study Academy. In this academically built course, you will learn the tools to study God's character and nature within a Bible passage and how to grow closer to God relationally through Bible study. This course titled Theology, Knowing God Through In-Depth Bible Study is packed with teaching lessons, homework, quizzes, and a resource list for personal study. Head to our website, coffeeandbibletime.com, to learn more about the Academy and course number seven today. Use promo code CBT Podcast, that's CBT Podcast, to get 50% off this course right now at coffeeandbibletime.com. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Well, let's talk a little bit about the half truths, uh, about heaven and the five whole truths that are really relevant to our work. You don't have to go to all of them, but what? Oh man, let's, no, let's do it. Let's wait. I I don't think we can get to all of them. There's so much unpack, but here's the problem. And I had this problem for years. Um, most of us spend more time planning a one week vacation than we do thinking about eternity. Mm. And what happens is that that inevitably will lead us to settle for wishy-washy half-truths about heaven that aren't full-blown lies, but are half-truths peddled by culture, rather than the epic whole truths that we find in Scripture that are essential for fueling our hope for the future and, I believe, our purpose in the present. Yeah. Let me just unpack a couple. One, uh, this half truth that uh, Earth is our temporary home. Kind of true. Uh, the whole truth is that Earth is our temporary home until it is our perfect and permanent one. Co- contrary to what the American end time tabloids might tell you, the Earth is not going to be vaporized like the Death Star in Star Wars, right? This is, a, this is all based on a single verse taken out of context in a very, very old translation of this passage of 2 Peter 3.10, where it says that the earth and everything in it will be burned up, right? New Testament scholars will tell you, and this is why we see in newer translations of the Bible, that word isn't there because based on the new manuscripts of the Bible that we have, the newest manuscripts we have, that word isn't in there. The word that's there says the earth will be found out, will be disclosed, will be revealed, and that's consistent with God's character. God is not a creator who obliterates and destroys. He reconciles and redeems. That's true of our souls. That's true of human bodies. See the risen Christ, and I would argue 
that's true of this earth. We Our hope is not for a whole new world, but a whole renewed world. And more and more Bible translations are actually translating new earth to renewed earth because that's a far more biblical picture of this. Now, the listener is asking, why the heck does this matter? Here's why this matters. If this earth is truly going to be obliterated in the end, it's going to be destroyed, cosmic destruction, then our work with this material world of planting gardens and typing on MacBooks made out of aluminum from the earth does not matter in the grand scheme of eternity. But if this earth is eternal and the things I'm working with are eternal, oh, suddenly my work has a lot more eternal significance. So I got a lot more purpose in the present and a lot more hope for the future, realizing that nobody's going to spend eternity in heaven as we think about heaven today. Nobody, not one person. Heaven will be here on earth. That's what Revelation 21 promises. And that gives us much more concrete hope for what it will be like to worship with Christ forever and ever. That's another half-truth in the book, this half-truth that we will worship for all eternity. The whole truth is we're going to worship for eternity by singing and by working with our hands. See Isaiah 65. Mm, Yeah. And I think like – I love how you've dispelled, I think, a lot of these half-truths that people that are so predominant, even in Christian culture, right? That, you know, you explaining all that um, was incredibly helpful. Well, the title of your book, Jordan, is Four Ways Your Job Matters for Eternity, even when you're not sharing the gospel. So what are those four ways? Yeah, let's do it. Number one, your work matters for eternity because it is a vehicle for contributing to God's eternal pleasure. Wild thing to think about. God doesn't need anything from us, but he allows us in our work to contribute to his eternal joy. Psalm 37, 23 says that the Lord directs the steps of the godly and delights in every detail of their lives. God does not just delight in watching you give money to your church, although he certainly delights in that. He doesn't just delight in watching you explicitly share the gospel with your coworkers. He delights in every detail Mm -hmm. of the lives of the godly, which means that everything you do at work today with excellence and love and in accordance with God's commands is an ingredient to his eternal pleasure. And that's the essence of worship. That's the first way your work matters for eternity, all of it. Not just the explicitly spiritual things. Number two, your work matters for eternity because it is largely through your work that you can earn eternal rewards, which we never talk about in the church. And these are not – we're not talking about earning salvation. We are talking about Jesus' incessant command, not just urgent command, that we chase after eternal rewards like treasures, like crowns. And like increased job responsibilities on the new earth. Number three, your work matters for eternity because through it, I believe we can scratch off the thin veil currently separating heaven and earth and reveal glimpses of the kingdom of God in the present. That's very mysterious, and we can unpack that more if you want to later. And then finally, number four, your work matters for eternity because, yes, you can leverage it to the instrumental end of sharing the gospel with those you work with. In the first few centuries of Christianity, it was mere Christians who contributed, according to scholars, 
more than 80% of conversions to Christianity. It was not religious it was not religious professionals. It was not pastors preaching in synagogues. It was mere Christians working as tent makers and as mothers and as marketers, whatever. I would argue the same is going to be true today if we accept that our work has intrinsic and instrumental value to God. Just want everybody kind of like soak that in because it just breathes new life into you. It really, it really does. Well, that's been my favorite. I've been reading all these early reviews of the book. I've heard a few people um, say this book has made me come up fully alive for the first time. Like, man, yeah, yes, that's the net of when you understand that God cares about everything you're doing. It's not the book. It's the biblical truths in the book. Yes. That free us to, to embrace this work that we've always loved but felt guilty for loving, right? It's a gift from God, and he delights in that. And I'm just giving you the biblical framework to be like, no, 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 no. You're, you, you've known in your bones that this matters beyond the Great Commission. I'm giving you the biblical evidence to support it. And the net of that is, yeah, being a fully alive human being who ironically is more effective at the Great Commission because you're fully alive. Hmm. Oh. Well, Jordan, you mentioned um, in the book that your favorite evangelism tool is a list of launchers. So, so yeah. as you said, the fourth uh, principle there was that we can actually evangelize. And this list yep. of launchers helps us have these conversations. And I think that that would be a great way to kind of wrap things up here with our listeners to like, you know, give like some practical tools when you're at that point. I made a promise to readers in this book that the book would not just be interesting, but that it would be profoundly helpful. Said another way, I'm not just going to show you how your work matters for eternity. I'm going to show you practically how to respond to that truth and maximize the eternal impact of your work. So there's 24 practices throughout the book. My favorite is this practice of building a list of launchers to take conversations with the lost from the surface to the serious to the spiritual. Because I I don't know about you, Ellen, but if not for some intentionality, my conversations with my lost neighbors and coworkers tend to stay pretty superficial. Right. Mm-hmm, sure. But I found that with God's grace and just a tiny little bit of intentionality, it's pretty easy to move conversations towards spiritual things. So this is how this works. I have a Google Doc on my phone. Uh, it's literally just called Launchers. And I got a list of names in that Google Doc of people that I am intentionally trying to share the gospel with. And next to each name, I've listed out a number of topics to bring up the next time I see that person to intentionally steer the conversation from the service to the serious, to the spiritual. So let me give you an example. We're recording this in December, a few weeks before Christmas. Um, and I'll change names here to protect the innocent, but my buddy, uh, we'll call him Brian. My buddy, Brian, he's a lapsed Catholic. Next time I see Brian, I'm going to ask Brian, Hey Brian, what, uh, what, what's your family's favorite Christmas traditions? It's a fairly superficial surface level question, but then I'm going to ask, Hey man, um, when did you stop going to Christmas Eve mass? Because I know you don't go anymore, right? It's getting a little bit more serious. And then I'm going to go to the go go to the spiritual. Be like, hey man, like, what? Where are you at with your faith? I know you grew up in the church. I know you haven't been in a long time. Where are you at with the question of Jesus? And maybe ask, hey, would you and your family want to come to church with my family on Christmas Eve this year? So you see how just a tiny little bit of intentionality of asking about Christmas traditions with your kids that nobody's gonna not talk about 
can be intentionally structured in a way to move, to launch that conversation from the surface to the serious, to the spiritual. So listeners, if you want to do this, this is the easiest thing you'll do. It'll take you 10 minutes, three steps to building your own list of launchers. Step one, choose where you're going to keep your list of launchers. This could be a Google doc like me. It could be a physical journal. It could be a simple note on your iPhone, whatever. Step two, list out the people, shoot for five people. You're intentionally trying to share the gospel with in this season. And then step three, just next to each person's name, list a few questions, a few topics, a few conversation starters that you think might, by God's grace, lead that conversation from the surface to the serious, to the spiritual. So the 24 practices in this book, that one has been a total game changer for me specifically Mm -hmm. to help me be better about making disciples, uh, which, again, is only one of the ways I work matters for eternity, but it's certainly an important one. Yes, 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 Absolutely. And, and like you said, there's so many other things in this book. Listeners, you're going to have to get Jordan's book, The Sacredness of Cellular Work, because like you said, there are so many other uh, principles that you can put into place to really make sure that you're fully living, <laughs> right? And understanding that your work matters for eternity. That's right. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us here again today. And I just wish you all the best um, on this book. And I, I know listeners for you that are listening, I hope that you feel challenged and encouraged and have a desire to investigate this further and uh, check out Jordan's book. So Thank you, Ellen. I can't wait. I can't wait to see you write a book someday, okay? That's what we're all waiting for. (laughs) We're working on it. All right, Jordan. Such a joy to have you with us. We um, are so grateful for you listeners. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Have a blessed day.